Well, thank you, Amy, for giving a great introduction to the sermon this morning and the text that we're going to read out of John chapter 20. So take your Bibles and join me as we read out of the fourth gospel. Uh, we're looking, as I mentioned to you last week, and actually starting on Easter, we're looking at some of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples in John chapter 20 and 21. So we've already found out that Mary Magdalene and the disciple Peter and this other unknown, unidentified disciple, they call him the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, they all have come to the empty tomb and they have seen that it's empty. Uh, the other disciple makes the connection that maybe Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter doesn't quite get it. At that point, Mary Magdalene stays, uh, stays around in the garden there, and Jesus appears to her. And now she is a believer in the resurrection as well. So we, we pick up the story in verse 24 of John chapter 20. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the, with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. In the previous verses, uh, Jesus has showed up, and Thomas is not there. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, and then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord, and together let us say, thanks be to God. Well, if you remember your British literature, you may remember the British poet Alfred Lord Tennyson. He was a 19th century English poet. I actually saw Tennyson's grave in 2004 when we went to England. He's buried in Westminster Cathedral in that area that's called the Poet's Corner, right there in England. And Tennyson, in one of his works, wrote the following. Tennyson said, There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. 
Now that statement suggests that doubt can actually be a good thing. It can be something that can grow and deepen our faith in God. But what's happened with this disciple named Thomas here in John 20 is that Thomas has been ridiculed during the centuries because he did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He wanted to see the nail prints in his hands. He wanted to see his side. And he said, unless I see and touch and feel and experience, I will not believe. So Thomas gets the name what? Doubting Thomas. Now, you know, all of us, I guess if we have to pick a side, we want to be on the side of trust, right? We want to be on the side of confidence and faith in Jesus. We don't want to be on the side of doubt and questioning and uncertainty about God and our faith, right? We want to be, be on the believing, confident faith side. But I've been thinking for a moment this week, and I'm wondering if you might think along with me this morning, could it be, as Tennyson suggests, that maybe doubt actually could be a good thing? Maybe doubt on occasion could be something that actually hap happens to allow us to grow and deepen our faith and our trust in God. Now, the Hebrew and Aramaic names for Thomas means twin. And in the text that we read, it says, Now Thomas called Didymus. Didymus is the Greek name that also means twin. So there are a lot of people who have wondered, is Thomas a twin? Does he have some brother or some sister out there that we just don't know about? Well, whether Thomas has a physical twin or not, I think it could be set, said that perhaps Thomas has a personality twin. He has a personality twin. He has a genuine and honest split between being a person of faith and trust and confidence in Jesus on the one hand, and on the other hand, retaining some healthy doubt and questions about Jesus. Let me just remind you of a couple of examples. In this same gospel, in John chapter 11, verse 16, Jesus finds out that Lazarus, his friend, has died. And so he tells his disciples, we're going back over to Judea and we're going to go see Lazarus. But the disciples remind Jesus that the last time he was in that neck of the woods, the Jews wanted to stone him. And they really suggest to Jesus, maybe we shouldn't go back, Jesus. But it's Thomas in verse 16 of John 11 who says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, that doesn't sound to me like a statement of doubt or questioning or uncertainty about Jesus or his mission. It sounds to me like a statement of trust and confidence. Let us also go and die with him. And yet we go a couple of chapters later to John 14, where Jesus gives us that beautiful text about let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. And Thomas is the one who raises his hand and says, But Lord, 
we don't know the way where you're going. How can we know the way? And that's when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's Thomas who raises his hand and says, Lord, we don't know how to get where you're talking about. Now he's a man not of faith and trust and confidence, but a man who's questioning, who's wondering, who has some doubts. So here we have Thomas, one, minute, one moment, a man of great faith and trust and confidence and willing to go and die with Jesus, and the next moment he seems to be filled with doubts and uncertainty. He's a twin. He's got a split personality when it comes to faith and confidence in Jesus. But now let's be honest for a moment. Isn't that how it is with you and me on so many occasions? One moment we're filled with hope and trust and faith that God's in charge and everything's going to be okay. And you talk to us the next moment and we've got all sorts of questions and all sorts of doubts and all sorts of wonderings about how God is going to take care of us. But this is what I want to suggest to you. I want to kind of piggyback on Tennyson this morning. Maybe doubt and faith can be a tool that can deepen our faith, that can actually grow our faith. Doubts and questionings do not necessarily negate the authenticity of your faith or my faith. I remember there were times when I was growing up when I doubted the authenticity of my parents' wisdom and judgment and guidance. Do you, any of you remember doubting your parents' wisdom and judgment and guidance? And the truth was at that time for me that, you know, I thought my wisdom exceeded the wisdom of my parents. And so there were times when I might have gone my own direction. But, but the fact is, the questioning and the doubts about my parents eventually led me to the point where I began to see the wisdom of my mom and dad. I was a little bit like Will Rogers used to say when he was 18 years old. He thought his mom and dad, or I think he actually said he thought his father was the dumbest man he'd ever met. And by the time Will Rogers said he turned to be 21 years old, he was surprised to see how much his father had learned in three years. There may be times when you doubt the wisdom and the judgment of your heavenly father. But over the course of time, if you stick with him long enough and follow what he suggests, even amidst the doubts and the questionings and the uncertainty, you may be surprised to learn how much God has learned in several years of time and how his wisdom may exceed yours and you can come to trust him. But it's in the questioning and it's in the doubts that our faith seems to grow. But not only does Thomas doubt Jesus' resurrection, it's also pretty obvious here in this text that he doubts his fellow disciples. And I wonder if deep down inside if he doesn't doubt himself. Because here he has given himself to Jesus for three years. I mean, he's poured out his life. He's sacrificed and he's given up what he formerly knew to be his life for three years. And now what does he get? A dead man. 
as far as he's concerned. The resurrection is not true. Thomas does not believe it. So Thomas, first of all, doubts the authenticity of the disciples' report. What do you mean Jesus has died? It, it may be that Thomas doubts as much the authenticity of his colleagues' report as he doubts the authenticity of the resurrection. And then he may be doubting himself. How could I be so foolish to give myself three years worth of my life for a man who's now dead? You know, there are times in our life where sometimes we have interactions with people and the trust level's not high. Or they disappoint us. And we've all been through those times when humanity disappoints us and it may even shake our faith in God a little bit. We have a bad experience with someone professionally, have a bad experience with someone who's a neighbor, have a bad experience with someone in our families. We can even have bad experiences where trust level isn't real high with people in the life of our church. And we can wonder, how, how can be, someone be so unkind and act so unchristian? And it just destroys your trust in people. And then someone comes along with whom you've always just had a little bit of suspicion. The trust level hasn't been quite as high. And some new interaction takes place and a relationship develops. And suddenly the trust level grows. And you begin to see that person in a different kind of light. You trust them for the first time or you have a relationship where they now matter to you in ways that they had never mattered before. You see, we all go through those times when we don't trust other people and we doubt who they are or their motives or what they're about. And then, of course, there are those times when doubt and uncertainty about ourselves come our way. And we wonder, did we make a bad decision? Are we up to the task of handling some challenge or some opportunity that comes our way? And, and we can feel so weak and so helpless and so vulnerable, and yet it's such a beautiful thing about our faith that often at the moment of our weakness and our vulnerability that God's the strongest, and he lifts us up. You know, like many of you in this room, I, I had over the last six weeks, my first experience with hospitalization and surgery. And it was, it was really an amazing thing to me because the week before my surgery, I just kept up my normal schedule here at the church. In fact, I may have worked a little bit harder trying to tie up loose ends to get ready to be out for what I anticipated to be a number of weeks. And I played tennis two or three times, and I ran just as hard as I could for two couple of hours, and I worked around the house and in the yard, which, of course, I can't do for the next year now. My, as I think I, you all may remember me telling you, my surgeon told me I could not do any housework for the next year. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure he said as soon as I felt like it, I could play all the tennis I wanted to. So here I was, you know, just my normal self doing everything that I did and Leslie and I took walks that week and the morning that I got to the hospital at 5.15, I walked out from the parking lot 
all the way down to ASU all by myself at a fast clip. And then they gave me six hours of anesthesia. And 7.30 to 1.30 and back in a room at 3 o'clock. And that night, the nurse wanted to get me up out of the bed. And it was like moving Mount Rushmore. You know, when you got six incisions in your belly, you don't move quite as fast as you used to. And it took the nurse and my wife Leslie pulling me out of the bed. And I can remember standing there with IVs in my, in my arms and and my legs felt like lead. I honestly could not move my legs more than, my feet more than just a couple of inches. And I stood there for three or four minutes and I thought to myself, how was it this morning that I walked in this hospital? And I can't move my feet or my legs now. They just felt so heavy. And I got to tell you, I just felt helpless and vulnerable and weak. And they got me back into the bed the next day. And, and I'd been told, walking is your friend. So I wanted to get up. But once again, we moved to Mount Rushmore to get me out of the bed and humped over, pushing the IV pole and just taking little steps and walking around the nurse's station and coming back and sitting in the chair for a couple of hours and just feeling exhausted. And now that was Tuesday. And two days before, I had zipped around this church and moved. And, you know, after a while, you start to doubt yourself. You start to wonder, am I ever going to get out of this hospital? And then finally you get home and you start asking yourself the question as the days and the weeks roll by and you don't feel like you're getting any better. And you start asking yourself the question, am I ever going to get well and feel like I used to feel? And that weakness and that vulnerability, it, it, it can overwhelm you. You know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he, he had what he called a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. But it was some, it seems, some perhaps physical affliction. And if you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says that Paul prayed to God three times for God to take it away. And he did and Paul felt so helpless, and he felt so weak, and he felt so vulnerable. And finally, God gave Paul the answer. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And there are those moments when we, get, when we become vulnerable and weak, and we... We stop believing in ourselves or we think we've made some mistake that can't be overcome and there's that doubt and uncertainty about ourselves. And I'm confident that that's where Thomas was in part. It wasn't just a doubt of God and it wasn't just a doubt in the authenticity of his colleagues' report that Jesus had risen from the dead. He was doubting himself and he felt vulnerable and weak and helpless. 
And my guess is every one of us in this room, in some shape, form, or fashion, we've been there, either physically or emotionally. We have felt vulnerable and helpless and weak. But you know, when I was in that hospital, God, and even after I got home, God sent angels my way in the form of people who were there in just the moment that I needed them because literally I I couldn't do anything for myself unless a nurse or my wife or somebody else came along. And God sent angels into your life too. You were vulnerable, you were weak, you were helpless, and suddenly people appeared. You didn't think you could do it by yourself, and odds are you couldn't. But somebody was there. Amy Andrews, uh, our minister of youth in college, we were talking on Monday in staff meeting about the backpacking trip the youth just got back from over Easter weekend. And, and you all hiked, what, four, four or five days or four, four? Four days up in the mountains, North Carolina. And there are a lot of those young people that go on that backpacking trip, and I, my guess is some of the adults too, and about midway, they start wondering, can I do this? Can I complete this, these days of backpacking? It's kind of getting you excited, isn't it, Catherine? You want to go on the next one. And uh, they doubt themselves, don't they, Amy? And they wonder, and then somebody comes alongside of them in their moment of vulnerability and helplessness, and, and they, they push them forward or carry their backpack for them, and suddenly they realize that they can do it. That's what Thomas was going through. He was vulnerable. He was helpless. And God's grace was sufficient for him. But, but you know what I think Thomas's real sin, if you want to call it a sin or a failure here, it, it wasn't his doubting. It was the fact that he was absent he was absent from the upper room with those other disciples. you got to ask yourself the question, where was Thomas on that first night when Jesus appeared? How come he wasn't there? Why didn't he show up? I mean, if Thomas had been there that night, in that room, in that house when Jesus first appeared, all of this discussion about doubting Thomas would have been a mute point. He never would have gotten that name because he would have showed up. He would have been there. And it's easy for you and me to make the same mistake. It's very easy for you and me when doubt or uncertainty or difficult times come, it's very easy for you and me to absence ourselves from the community of faith. We have times of conflict, times of disagreement, times of struggle. We do doubt. We have uncertainty. We have questions. And we don't stay connected to the life of the community of faith that we call the church. But what the beautiful thing is, is that when those moments come and we do stay connected to God's people, we often rediscover a new depth of trust and faith in God, in other people, even in ourselves, that allows us to end up at the same place that Thomas did when he saw Jesus and he touched him and he said, my Lord and my God. He didn't say, hey, there's the Lord and the God. He said, he's mine. He's my Lord. He's my God. John Westerhoff, who formerly taught years ago at Duke Divinity School, 
John Westerhoff wrote a book entitled, Will Our Children Have Faith? And he talks about the four phases or stages that people often find faith in God. First stage he calls experienced faith. That's when we bring those little preschoolers and elementary children to church. And if you ask them to explain God or Jesus or the Bible, they couldn't do it, but they experience the love of God through loving and caring Sunday school teachers or mission leaders or choir leaders, or they feel it through parents. It's called experience faith. And then the next stage of faith he calls affiliative faith, where a child gets to the point, or even it could be an older uh, teenager or even a young adult, but a person gets to the point where they say, hey, I want to belong. I want to affiliate with the life of the church. And that's when the time comes when you find and see many children accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They make a profession of faith. They are baptized. They join. They belong to the church. So you've got experienced faith, affiliative faith. And then the third phase, phase, Westerhoff says, is what he calls searching faith where you get into your teenage years or maybe your college years and there are things about the Bible you don't understand or you've had some experiences of life that have hit you hard and you wonder, can there, is there really a loving God who cares for me and takes care of me? And you start having all these questions and doubts. But the last stage, Westerhoff calls owned faith. And what he says is that it's the questioning and the doubts of the searching faith that propels us to make somebody else's faith, my faith. It's not my mom and dad's faith any longer. It's not a brother's or a sister's or a grandparent's faith. It's not the faith of my pastor or my Sunday school teacher or a deacon or some other youth leader. It's my faith. And that's what Thomas is saying here. He's gone through a phase of searching faith and now he's owning it. It's not the Lord and the God. He's my Lord and he's my God. You know, back on February the 21st, the day happened that we all knew was coming, but none of us wanted to see happen. Billy Graham died, 99 years old. And a lot of us grew up watching Billy Graham on television. Some of us, I did, served one time in a counselor, as a counselor in one of the Billy Graham Crusades. And so it's an experience you don't ever forget. He was so widely acclaimed and respected in our world and certainly in our country that his body, as you'll recall, lay in honor in the Capitol Rotunda for two days. And after that time, his body was flown back in that simple casket and it was there at his library in Charlotte, in our state here. So hundreds of thousands of people over that week paid respect in person or paid respect by way of television as his funeral was televised to this remarkable man. You know, even at age 99, when somebody dies, it's sad. You know it was sad for his family. It was sad for us, those of us who had known him and had been influenced and blessed by his ministry. It's in those moments of death. It's in those moments of illness and sickness and surgery. It's in those moments where we grieve or we have a 
difficult life experience and we start doubting ourselves or others or God, those are the moments when we're weak and helpless and vulnerable. Those can be the moments that actually can deepen our faith and grow our faith and not diminish it. Every one of us in this room need to remember that our names, our names are Thomas. In some shape, form, or fashion, when it comes to faith and doubt, every one of us is a twin. Let's pray together. God, this morning, we especially pray for those who feel weak and vulnerable, who feel helpless because some life event has slapped them in the face. And maybe, Lord, there is doubt in your love and in your providence. Maybe there is doubt in questioning about others. Maybe there's just doubt about some course of action we've taken or just that helplessness that we feel. Please remind all of us this day that your grace is sufficient, that when we are weak, you are strong, and we rest in your strength. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.